Welcome everyone to The Lighthouse, a podcast series dedicated to providing advanced financial planning and wellness insights to the clients and families we serve. My name is Jack Butler, and my business partner, John Stanford, and I are financial advisors with the Hatteras Wealth Management Group at UBS. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Justin Waring, investment strategist with the UBS Global Wealth Management Chief Investment Office. Over the past few years, I've become familiar with Justin's research, and I think he does an excellent job writing about financial topics that are important to our clients. His work regarding behavioral finance, though, is why I wanted to have him on the show today. The past year has been a roller coaster for investors, and it seems as if we've been through a full market cycle within the last 12 months. With 24-7 media and technology that inundates us with information, I don't think there's ever been a more important and difficult time than today to block out noise that can contribute to greed and fear, which are the two forces that have destroyed more wealth than anything else in history. Justin and I talk about booms and busts, how history often rhymes and repeats itself, and how to avoid irreversible losses from making the wrong decision at the wrong time. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, Justin, I wanted to first start off by saying that we're thrilled to have you on the show today and greatly appreciate you taking the time to join us on the uh, Lighthouse today. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. It's just going to be a very interesting conversation. It is. It is. And definitely looking forward to hearing your comments, Justin, here in just a second. But to start us off, would you mind sharing with us a brief background of your role here at UBS and how it fits into the firm's intellectual capital that we provide clients. Yeah, so I work in the chief investment office, which is the research arm that's dedicated specifically to our wealth management clients. Unlike a lot of other research teams, we're not really focusing on institutions that are trying to meet um, specific financial goals that are you know set in stone, like 4% a year of spending or things like that. We, we live with the nitty gritty real life uh, situations that families face over the course of multiple generations. And my focus in particular is on a framework that we call the UBS Wealthway, which is attempting to put all of a client's goals and resources into context, make sure that they can meet their goals uh, with a high probability of success and achieve things um, that they might have missed other Otherwise, by solely focusing on things like maximizing return, which can often be a distraction from actually achieving what a family wants to achieve. And so, you know, in that context, we write a lot about behavioral finance. We talk about uh, portfolio management and asset allocation approaches. But ultimately, those are just tools to help our clients, families uh, meet their goals over the course of their life. Yeah, and the, the behavioral finance piece is is really you know what I was so excited to have you on the show about today because I've read your stuff over the years about behavioral finance. I found it fascinating, and for the listener who may be unfamiliar with this concept, uh, can you give the audience an overview of what behavioral finance is and why it's so important? Yeah, so behavioral finance is essentially dealing with the reaction function of investors. So how do we um, perceive and react to to market returns? How do we perceive and react to risks? Um, and how does that affect our decision-making? Now, I, I before, in I was talking about the difference between institutional clients and, and private clients, but the truth is that everyone suffers from behavioral biases. Um, the, the, the root of our behavioral biases essentially comes from the fact that our brains evolved over the course of hundreds of thousands of years to deal with the natural world. And there's very little natural about financial markets. It's not, it's not something for which we've built an intuition. 
Um, we are very good at linear forecasting. If you are trying to throw a spear to hit a woolly mammoth that's moving, um, your brain has, has been trained very well to do that. And so you can throw the spear with a lead time. If you're trying to catch a baseball, you're not doing any math to figure out what the trajectory is. You have got an intuition of how to catch that ball. Unfortunately, that intuition not only doesn't apply to financial markets and to investing and to making uh, any kind of financial decisions, um, it, it not only doesn't apply, but it also, we have an intuition that is wrong. So we, we do this linear forecasting thing with markets. So we, if the market's gone up, we think it's, we, we essentially intuitively believe that it will continue to go in one direction forever. When the market is going down, we intuitively believe that it'll go down. This is, you know, Daniel Kahneman and, and Amos Tversky have done, have done a lot of work on behavioral finance, and they've written a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And that is actually, you know, a really important thing to bear in mind is that our initial reaction is intuitive and instinctive, and it takes a little bit longer for our rational mind to kick in. So if you think fast and you do what your gut reaction tells you to do, you'll get one response. But if you think rationally about what's the right thing to do and you study, study the, the variables, you may end up coming with a completely different you know, response. And so a lot of behavioral finance essentially comes to second guessing your intuition and making sure with data and with analysis that you're taking actions that make rational sense. You're selling to protect yourself against a drawdown feels right. You just want to stop the bleeding. You want to stop the losses. But most of the time when the market has already suffered a drawdown, it actually has improved the return outlook for those, for those investments. And locking in that loss can be very damaging to your long-term goals. And so that's a type of example of you, you're responding to the pain of, of a market drawdown that's temporary and you're turning it into damage by locking in that loss, which means that not only are you, you know, not going to have the, the potential for, for a recovery, but you've also made it really hard for you to get back onto track for what your original investment strategy was. Yeah, those are such great points. And I think it's it, because it's so counterintuitive sometimes, I think that's why we've seen these boom and bust play out over and over again even just in recent history, whether it's tulip mania, South Sea bubble, roaring 20s, dot-com stocks, real estate. You know, I think to your point, it's just so clear that oftentimes we have this kind of herd mentality and that kind of you know, leads us to make the wrong decision at the wrong time. But even just looking more recently, clients have been through three very different, very severe bear markets in the last 20 years now. And it's natural to want to avoid those types of downturns at all costs going forward. Uh, but you wrote a great piece recently that discussed the difference between pain versus damage. Can you give us an overview of that report and how it relates to this concept of loss aversion or, or, or trying to avoid losses at all, at all costs? Yeah, so it's funny. So loss aversion is essentially the the fact that we feel the pain of losses about twice as powerfully as we enjoy the pleasure of gains. And this has been studied time and time again, and essentially means that we require compensation for taking the risk of a loss. Um, but mathematically, the risk of losing money temporarily and the and the 
it has has a similar cost or identical cost really to your ability to compound wealth as missing out on growth opportunities. So when it comes to dollars in your bank account, losses or gains should be viewed equivalently, but our brains trick us into thinking that the losses are worse. So for every dollar amount, and, and this results in, in sort of myopia around how to make the right investment decisions. And so I, I like to come back to this example of during World War II, there was a statistician that was brought in to try to figure out how we can armor our, our planes, our bombers more effectively. Now, the, 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 the challenge here is you, you pay a price for adding armor to a plane. It reduces its ability to, its ability to fly further distances and, and achieve uh, targets that are, that are further away. And so they wanted to take a look at the data that they found from returning bombers to try to figure out where can we get the most value out of adding any additional armor. And so they mapped all of the places where the damage had occurred on bombers that had re returned to base. And the initial response was, okay, well, now we know where they're more likely to be hit. And now we know that we don't need to armor these other places because, you know, the, you don't need to put armor where there's no, no bullets. And this gentleman whose name is Abraham Weld, he said, actually, it's the opposite. We are getting data on the planes that are returning from combat, but the ones that get shot down, we don't have any data on those. So this is, this is an example of what we call survivorship bias. Um, you've got a data set that is incomplete and there's a bias in, in the data that you have that might lead you to, to the wrong conclusion. And the reason I bring this up is because when we talk about the risk of investing, the losses are something that's tangible. It's on our balance sheet. We can see it in real time, but the opportunity cost, which is what we call, you know, the, the possible return from the, from another alternative that's hidden from us. That's not on your balance sheet. It doesn't say on your statement every month, you could have made another $10,000 if you'd done this. I'm glad that we don't live in that kind of world because there's always something that's doing better than your portfolio and we don't need the fear of missing out to be any stronger than it already is. But it's important to remember that when you're balancing risk and reward, you get an advantage for your long-term wealth and it actually gives you more safety to take short-term risks. So you have to be willing to live with the short-term drawdowns and the short-term market volatility in order to get the long-term growth. That long-term growth will give you enough money that other parts of your life become less risky. If you've got $10 million instead of $1 million, it can change your financial freedom quite substantially. You might be able to retire early. You can suffer a larger drawdown after, after you've created that wealth. Um, and ultimately, you know, balancing your short-term risk aversion and loss aversion versus your long-term financial goals is, is, of course, a very difficult task. It's very hard for us to think about the future. But one strategy that we like to tell people is to empathize with your future self. Ask yourself not how to make yourself today happier, but consider what's the right approach for future you. And they found, they found in studies that um, you know, they can use AI to show a picture of yourself or a video of yourself that, that's aged. Um, so maybe this is, this is what you'll look like when you're 50 or 60. And just doing that exercise can help to improve people's ability to uh, take a long-term perspective of things because it really humanizes your future self in a way that is otherwise maybe a little bit abstract. You know, there's this idea of like you only live once. 
Um, and so you should just live life to the fullest. But actually, the paradox of you only live once is you only live once. So you have to succeed in this lifetime. You don't get if even if your strategy works 99% of the time, you have to if you're in that 1%, you're in trouble. And so you need to, you know, it's important for you to build an investment strategy and a spending approach and, a, you know, balance sheet management that helps you to be flexible and roll with the punches of that short-term life gives you, because otherwise you won't be able to achieve those long-term goals. That's a great way to think about it in terms of you know, trying to envision yourself, you know, 20, 30 years from now. And what would you, t- what would that person then say to you? I mean, Warren Buffett has mentioned time and time again that, if you know he believes that markets over the next 30 years will likely perform the way they have the last 100 and how we could have a, a Dow of around 100,000 in the next 30 years, which seems so you know, unbelievable. But um, at the same time, to your point, when, when you're either retired or you're accumulating wealth, you don't really get any do-overs when it comes to uh, this. And sometimes those wrong decisions along the way can lead to irreversible losses. So let's talk about that for a second, because I know that for a lot of clients, it's those really those devastating financial events, those, irre- those irreversible losses type scenarios that clients want to understandably avoid. And, and, and I think one of the top reasons to, as to why that can happen really comes down to something like market timing, for example. Um, and when people often fail to realize is that not only do you have to get the, the top correct of when you're going to get out, but then you also have to time the bottom as well for when you get back in. And can you just share with us in your research how difficult it is to do that, not only once, but even consistently going forward? Yeah, it's and again, it's it's one of these things that's tempting and you'll you see you see this in the media all the time. People are very willing to talk about their successes, but they keep their their failures private. And so it might seem easier to market time than it really is. And if you've been investing for a long time, it's likely that you've learned this lesson the hard way. It's hard to for younger investors, it's hard to teach them this because it's not something that is, again, it's not intuitive. And there are so many counter examples of people bragging about how they've been able to market time or they've been able to put all their money into a single stock or, or whatever speculative thing that they're doing. It always looks better in social media than it is in reality. If you think about people taking pictures of themselves and posting it on Instagram, the Instagram profile of a person is not related to reality. And so it's important for us to, you know, talk about like the real, the actual experience of investing. And like you said, we've had multiple really catastrophic losses, but they've all been recovered within a few years. And so that's the first and most important thing is that the market goes higher over time. Bear markets, which are these drawdowns in, in, in equity prices, they usually only take a few months to reach a bottom and then they recover within a few years. If you have a diversified portfolio, so a, a good allocation to stocks and bonds and alternatives, the, the drawdown size and the time to a full recovery uh, shortens. That, that reduces the window where you might be at risk of locking in those losses. The only way that those become irrecoverable losses is if you have to sell and lock those in. And so building 
you know, resilience into your financial strategy so that you don't have to pull assets out of the stock market during a drawdown is one of the easiest steps that an investor can take. So that can involve having bonds in the portfolio to shorten that window of, of possible mistakes. And it can also involve having you know enough cash and borrowing capacity so that you can meet your spending needs, especially in retirement, without having to touch those assets. You know, 401ks and IRA accounts, they, they have an immense power to compound growth, and you really can't touch them for several decades after you put the assets in. So there's already a built-in ability for you to separate short-term drawdowns from, from long-term uh, spending needs. And, and sort of that component is really, really important is, is to sort of insulate the money that you need for your short-term needs from the short-term market volatility. At the end of the day, the, the, the term buy low, sell high is a fallacy. Um, in reality, as investors, we are saving into we are saving our pay, money from our paychecks and putting them into our portfolio over the course of our of our career. And then in retirement, we're withdrawing from the portfolio and and selling selling the portfolio to finance our retirement lifestyle. That's not buy low, sell high. That's buy now, sell later. And that's ultimately the actual way that investing works. And, you know, anyone who tries to tell you to that they, they can get an advantage out of market timing, um, you know, it's, it is possible, but it's very unlikely. And so we've actually gone back and figured out if we if we had a career's worth of, of paychecks going into the portfolio and we every time a paycheck comes in, we wait until what we call never seen again levels. So these are the lowest that that dollar will ever see the stock market at. So the market goes up over time. It very rarely retraces losses. But in this in this situation, we're just going to assume we have perfect timing and we're buying at these these lowest lowest possible levels for every dollar that is going into the portfolio. And what we found is that even if you had perfect timing, you don't get a very much a better result than if you just put the dollar to work right away when you get it in your paycheck. The result is something like 2% more wealth after 40 years. It's nothing. That's that's absolutely, you know, it's 0.0 something percent um, on an annual basis. It really doesn't add any value. Now, you could trade your entire portfolio in and out of the stock market, but I think everyone knows intuitively that that's not a good idea. And then, uh, so the last, <laughs> I know this is a long, long answer, but the last thing I would say about irreversible losses is that actually, like we were talking before about survivorship bias, the irreversible, the irreversible losses are actually the missing out on the stock market rally. So if I had, if everyone had their druthers, they would want to get all of the paychecks for their career the day that they start working and invest it into the market because the stock market is going to go up over time. If market timing were valuable, if we lived in a world where market timing was valuable, this, that wouldn't be true. People would be wanting to get their paychecks over time so that they can buy it successively lower prices. But that's not the world we live in. The stock market goes up. It doubles, you know, about every 10 years. Um, and we need to be invested in the stock market as early as possible to get the most compounding of growth in our portfolio. The earlier you can get your money into the market, the faster you'll be able to retire both because you're controlling your spending in order to save that money, but also because you're getting compounding growth uh, on your portfolio. Yeah, I think those are all great points. And Justin, I think your your office had a uh, report a while back that had talked about if you looked at over the last 60 years, if you found every major downturn in the market, if you 
would have sold out nine months before the, the peak and bought nine months after the bottom over the course of that 60 years. I mean, your timing was perfect on every single downturn. You still would have underperformed the S&P over that time period because you're missing that concept of the best days, which we can, mm-hmm. we can talk about. Um, you just share with us that concept of the best days and for the listeners who aren't really familiar with that, if you look at the S&P the last few decades, if you miss just the 10 best days in the market, uh, your return gets cut, cut in something like it's like half uh, or almost half, uh, for example. And those best days tend to happen around, around the peaks and troughs. So what would you say just about um, you know, the, the missing the 10 days and just how that can play just such a significant role in, in performance over a long period of time? Yeah, it's it's very interesting that because the way that market volatility works, I feel like I have to step take a step back and explain that. So markets are generally they if you looked at the market 90% of the time, it's it's a pretty smooth path. But 10% of the time the markets are absolutely crazy. Um, they're they're either euphoric or actually quite more often, you know, investors are panicking. And um Investing in those periods of panic can be very difficult because they're few and far between. You can you can kind of get lulled into a false sense of security when the, when everything is going smoothly for a really long time, and then suddenly it's like you're in bizarro world and stocks are dropping you know five or six percent a day. Um, same thing happens on the other side, even in the midst of. Now you've gotten accustomed to drawdowns and panic, and suddenly now the stock market starts going up five or six percent a day. So the best and the worst days for the market tend to be clumped together around these periods of market volatility. If you you could equally say if you miss out on the worst days, you'll get a much better return, and if you miss out on the best ways, you'll get you'll you'll get a much worse return. But the truth is, you're going to have to live with both. These come right one after another. Um, and if we look at 2020, you see an example of that will be up 8%, down 6%, up 8%, down 10%. You know, there are these really, really volatile days that follow, you know, one after the other. Selling after a strong day or selling after a, a weak day, it doesn't really matter. If you're trying to market time, it's, you know, the world runs a little bit on irony, I like to say. And I think the second that you capitulate, that's when the market will rally. That's the way the market cycles tend to work is that at the top of a bull market, everyone who's willing to pay that price is already bought. At the bottom of a bear market, everyone who is willing to sell at that price has already sold. That's how market turns get generated is, you know, capitulation and exhaustion. So it's, in, it's important for all investors to think about the psychological journey that all investors go on, but especially the psychological journey that you're going to go on during a market cycle and prepare yourself for this market volatility because it will happen. And the most important thing is for you to stay your course. And if you can, take advantage of these periods of extremes, rebalance your portfolio, um, make sure that you're, you know, de- you're putting your cash to work, especially, you know, if there's, especially if there's a drawdown, because those are so rare, uh, they should be viewed as opportunities uh, to, to, to sort of enhance your compounding of growth over time. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And uh, Sir John Templeton uh, has said that bull markets are born on pessimism, they grow on skepticism, they mature on optimism, and they die in euphoria. And I feel like recently, Justin, we've seen um, maybe a little bit of that euphoria kind of creeping into just a select few names. Uh, We've done a lot of research that 
suggests that the overall market isn't uh, euphoric to say the least, but certainly the GameStop, the AMCs, the the, the rocket mortgage uh, companies, if you will. And, and I think that's where you start hearing anecdotally more and more stories of people that you know who are kind of gambling or day trading on the side and, and making a bunch of money, which really leads to another detrimental bias when it comes to investing. And that's one of overconfidence or your belief in your own intelligence and understanding of how markets work is going to continue to lead to success time and time again. Uh, look no further than Sir Isaac Newton, who during the South Sea bubble, he had invested a substantial portion of his money. He made about 100% on it right off the bat, got out. And then when the mania really took off, he got back in and basically lost everything. And he would tell his acquaintances that he could calculate the masses of heavenly bodies, but not the madness of people. So just when it comes to uh, maybe what we're going through here recently, uh, and when it comes to our own uh, estimate of our own ability, just give me some feedback and any research that you come across that suggests that you know we need to be kind of all wary and, and just have a little bit more humility when it comes to um, our capabilities when it, when it comes to investing. It's a really good point, and I would say that uh, Sir Isaac Newton was the only one to lose his shirt on that. I believe the U.S. government, uh, sorry, the U.K. government is still paying interest on the debt that they incurred during the Celsius bubble, even though it was hundreds of years ago. Um, really catastrophic market event that. So that, that's a good reason to diversify, also because you know draw, drawdowns tend to be a lot less if you if you have other things in your portfolio that can zig when 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 something in your portfolio has has a loss like that. So yeah, when it comes to overconfidence, it is it is really difficult to identify your own overconfidence. And I, I would just give an example, you know, with all the epidemiology talk that we've had over the course of COVID nineteen. There's a there's an there's a bit of a hump in in knowledge. In the early days of COVID nineteen, we didn't know anything about it, and and we knew we didn't know anything. But as you know, we saw scientists and doctors in in the field, uh, you know, to, you know, coming out and, and writing articles and being on TV. We started to know a little bit, and and we started to think that we understood it just as well as they did. And for people who just stopped there, they stopped at the headlines, they didn't read any further, a lot of them felt like then they knew better than the experts because they, they didn't just read one expert's opinion, they read a lot of experts' opinions. But for people who actually did a deeper dive and tried to you know, you know, go even further to understand the uncertainties around, around the research, then they started to revert to their original view, which is that they don't, they don't know enough to, to, to say anything for sure. The people that are stuck in the middle part there, where they know enough to be dangerous to themselves, there's something called the Dunning-Kruger phenomenon. So there's a guy who tried to rob a bank with lemon juice on his face because lemon juice is used for invisible ink. And he thought that it would make him invisible to video cameras. Um, this is the phenomenon where you you know and 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 you don't know enough to know how little you know. Um, and when it comes to investing, there are so many things that you can know, all of the details of a balance sheet of a company, all of the, the specifics of, of an investment strategy, whatever have you, but you cannot know the mania of, of the crowds and you don't know how other people will react to that same information. And so just like the, the Newton quote that you read earlier, you need to account for the fact that 
Um, at the end of the day, short-term market prices are driven by sentiment and emotions and panic um, and greed and, and build your investment strategy in a way that you're, you are, have an ability to sell if, if there are prices are euphoric, you have the ability to buy if prices are pessimistic, but you're not going to be forced to sell in any in any sort of you know short term market disruption, that's the key to investment success ultimately, and that's why we we have this UBS Wealthway framework where we have a liquidity strategy that is geared for short term cash flow needs. We have the longevity strategy that is earmarked assets for the rest of your life, and then we have the legacy strategy for assets that go beyond the the your own lifetime to help either charity or or future generations of your family. By segmenting wealth into these three categories, which we call the three L's, we're able to match up investment strategies for each of those different segments with the behavior that markets have over those different time frames. It also helps us to sort of put a face on the opportunities and the opportunity costs of those investment strategies over, over those different time horizons. And, and as a result, what it, what it really does is it's aligning your investment strategy with your own personal goals in a way that rather than avoiding the emotional component of investing, we're embracing the emotional component of investing and acknowledging it formally in the way that we structure a client's assets. And what we found is that by aligning those things together and making it clear that we're able to achieve these goals, we're able to empower families to not only achieve the goals that they knew they had, but uncover new goals. And then also to achieve things that, that they never would have thought to try to achieve. And this all comes at, you know, with the result of, of a really deep relationship with a financial advisor and a, and a comprehensive financial plan that, you know, often can be, you know, maybe financial plans are viewed as a little bit boring, but, the UBS Wealthway allows us to sort of put all of the client's context and worries all into one framework to help us make rational decisions and get away from some of these behavioral biases. Yeah, Justin, that's a perfect note to end on because, you know, when we talk about these uh, cardinal sins of investing, if you will, well, whether it's market timing or overconfidence or concentration risk, or just even, you know, getting caught up in what your friends or family members are, are doing or not doing with their money, I think what the wealth way is, is not only the anecdote to all of those behavioral biases, but also it's really the framework that helps you get the most out of your finances with as little risk as possible and really helps you focus on the big picture of what's important. So I think just to summarize also, uh, you, had, you had talked about you know, overconfidence and I, it brought me to this quote of uh, Mark Twain, who I think himself ran into financial difficulties as well, but he had uh, said at one point, uh, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> and I think that's just a perfect, a perfect uh, note to end on uh, for the sake of our conversation today. So really, as a, as a tee up for our next podcast, we will be talking more about Wealthway in general and, and really how that can uh, be implemented to protect against all these different dynamics that are so important to clients. So just with that said, Justin, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate your time and uh, your insights that you shared with us. Thanks for having me, Jack, and looking forward to hearing the, the next podcast as well. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. <laughs>